This is the murderer you know. So I don't I didn't email it to dad if that's what you're looking for. I was looking for it on my phone. Oh, okay. Oh. Well, I think it's just Okay, I'll just I don't have as much to say this time. I'll just pop in. I highly doubt that. <laughs> you know me i'm not very opinionated oh well is everyone funny 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 theory through their correct microphone do i sound bad no i'm just saying we should all double check round two welcome to to the murderer you know oh oh theme song (laughs) (laughs) this is uh This is a part two, a part two. How are you guys? Sunday, fun day. Ready to get down to my favorite part, the punishment. Yes, that's always good. Well, we have a, I have a couple things. Uh, one more small thing I really wanted to talk about. So, oh, your least favorite part. We didn't get to that. <laughs> well, welcome back, everyone. This is part two of... I don't know what we're going to call. I never know what we're going to call the episodes at the time we're recording them. But last week we talked about my mom's coworker whose wife was found dead in a body of water behind their house. And we talked a little bit about his insurance company suing him, or I guess her, well, it was their insurance company suing him, kind of dragging his name through the mud, attempting not to give him the money. We talked about autopsy reports. We talked about his story and a little bit of their history together. So like you said, Miss Lawyerina, mm-hmm. this week we're going to talk about legal stuff, dun, dun, dun. crime and punishment. Dun, dun, dun. But first, oh, okay. I want to talk a little bit about how I feel like this guy was Scott Peterson's inspiration. Mm, yeah because Uh-oh. there's a real it's about to get real scott peterson-y for a second because i want to get back into before we get to what was that thing called the special grand jury mm. before we get to the actual trial i just want to talk about this relationship with this college student a little bit more oh shit i forgot about that <laughs> wait a minute all right all right let me get the snacks so if you haven't listened to last week go listen while we're getting our snacks and then come back to this exact spot and we're about to get into it what are these snacks I don't have any snacks. So the, <laughs> you didn't uh, get your uh, mail me. order charcuterie board. <laughs> the point is to get snacks. I'm just, I'm not sure if you don't come prepared, that's kind of on you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's nothing special. Like just go get some like cookie. I know you have, we know you have snacks. thousand chocolate chip cookies <laughs> in your pantry. We know you have right snacks. as we speak. Three bags of chips, four <laughs> bags of pretzels stale pretzels no we gave this the stale pretzels away (laughs) yeah to me (laughs) that's a great present so all right let's talk about it mr scott peterson mr Uh, i mean mr archaeology 
as we were calling him. Not only was he very busy being sued by the insurance company after his wife's death, he was also super busy continuing to date his new girlfriend. So we're going to talk about one of the ways that the state collected evidence in a couple of minutes. And this could go there too, but since this was kind of happening at the same time as his wife's death, I wanted to talk about this first. So this woman told the state that her boyfriend, and we're talking Mr. Archaeology here just to get us back into the story. He called her from New York in January. Like I said, a la Scott freaking Peterson, because guess where he was? Uh, no you don't idea. know yet? In January, <laughs> very early January, she said he sounded vague and confused and distant. And he said he was in New York for business. They made plans to see each other when she went back to school, but he was in New York for his wife's freaking funeral. Oh my God. And was calling her from his in-laws house. So the scoop on this lady is she doesn't even know that Mm -mm. Mrs. Archaeology exists. That's correct. Okay. Yeah. She didn't Mm -hmm. even know he was married. Yep. Mm. So after the funeral, he met his girlfriend for dinner on January 11th. That would be for those who are counting nine Nine? days after his wife died. During the rest of the month and into February, he showered her with gifts, clothes, perfume, expensive lingerie. He asked her to spend spring break with him in March, but she actually said no. And she later said that around this time, he told her he was falling in love with her. And he mentioned for the first time in their relationship that he had been married but that his wife had passed away. Scott Peterson. Mm. <laughs> like, this is exactly, did I he, swear to God. Did he, Scott, mention, like, read... <laughs> did he mention she had like just passed away? Like, no, he did not. He acted ago. like it was just, you know, a thing. In a very past. long ago, right. family history, <laughs> historical stuff here, approximately nine days ago. Very, very long yeah. in the past. So this woman who once described herself as infatuated with her new boyfriend, said that she just assumed the death had occurred a while ago and she didn't ask for any additional details. Sometime in the early spring, though, the young woman overheard some of her other professors discussing the tragic death of her boyfriend's wife. This was the first... Go ahead. They didn't, they knew him, but they didn't know that they were, that this young student, can we give her a name? Like, oh, like Lacey Peterson. (laughs) (laughs) She don't need a name. There's not that many people in the No, she wouldn't be Lacey Peterson anyway. That's right. She wouldn't be. Okay. So they did not know. So anyway, screwing this whole part. (laughs) (laughs) So they wouldn't know that the, the student, lady no. was dating him correct but they knew him 
Yes, they knew okay. him Professor? because they were all in the, you know, this archaeology community, business. which I guess was relatively small. So yeah, she overheard her other professors discussing the tragic death of this guy's wife. And that was the first time she learned that the guy she had been dating since October had actually been married basically the entire time. And also, did she then, you know, figure out that his wife died a couple of weeks ago? Yeah, that's what she learned Oof. at that time, that he, that his wife had just died. Mm. She told the state later that she was completely horrified to learn that she had been dating a married man, and she realized that she didn't know him at all. Not long after Ooh. she learned about his wife and the death of his wife, he called her at her mom's house. She confronted him and broke things off by telling him she never wanted to see him again. She later said she wasn't completely honest with him about the breakup and that she actually realized around that same time she was pretty much over him back in February at Valentine's Day. I guess it was, I mean, I don't know. I feel like maybe she's saying that now. Hindsight bias. But I mean, like, exactly. yeah, I totally hated that douchebag. I knew he was a murderer. Yeah. I knew it. So the day after they broke things off, he showed up at her mom's house, pounding on the doors and the windows and ringing the doorbell over and over, but she refused to answer. And over the next couple of weeks, he tried desperately to get her back. And he just sounds like such a, just a smooth operator because what did he choose to do? He basically stalked her. <laughs> He followed her around campus. He stood outside her classroom windows and stared up at her. Uh, and <laughs> all right. I mean, even if you aren't a murderer, I feel like this is probably not the best way to get back into someone's good graces. I just feel Oof. like who would respond to that? Well, when you're a murderer, it's hard to best address situations when really all you know how to do is murder in in hard times I, I don't know yeah I'm I'm not sure he's a uh, he's a person of, of deep emotional depth I think it's he's true somebody who you know I, I think he was probably infatuated with this girl I, I doubt he's even capable of loving anybody yeah I mean, how could you murder somebody that you knew how long have they known each other like 10 years long I think it was longer yeah, yeah. and been married to them and shared all this stuff mm -hmm. and then it's like oh well I'm kind of tired of you boom gone mm -hmm. yeah Most well I mean that's your opinion oh, because sorry. his opinion was that he was dealing with not heartbreak and loss of his wife and the insurance company smearing his good name because he was he having was a really hard time in the wake of his wife's accidental. Yeah, yeah nope, I can't even yeah. say it. And, the only, murder. and murder. the only person he had to turn to was his girlfriend who dumped him. Double heartbreak. <sighs> Poor guy, sad. man. It is sad. <laughs> Poor guy. Well, she told her professors that she was really scared of him and that she was feeling super uncomfortable. And they all started giving her rides home and keeping an eye out for this guy around campus. So he was just turning people against him, like at every turn, basically as wow. much as he possibly could. And he, he finally stopped trying to win her back in April. So he stopped lurking around and staring through classroom windows at her. 
ways when not to behave you know, after committing a murder wasn't successful was was he still living in his house and working at the same place i mean i know yes. later he switched jobs but he was still... at this time he was okay so while he's dealing with heartbreak and <laughs> that smear campaign on his character the state was starting to build their case against him. I they wonder said, why. Why would they be <laughs> suspicious? I couldn't imagine. <laughs> I mean, we know it all started with the lawsuit from the insurance company and just kind of went from there. When does the girlfriend talk to them in this kind of unfolding event? Is it a while later? I actually don't, that's a great question. I don't know exactly when she talked. It was, she started talking to people shortly after learning that his wife had just died. Mm. So it was sometime that spring that she talked right. to the insurance company. She was interviewed for this special grand jury. I just see so many parallels to the, to the Peterson case here. You know, as soon as she found out what was going on, but, but what, how did the police in our small town find this girl? How did they know he had a girlfriend? She came forward after oh, okay. she found out that he was married the entire time they were dating and was calling her from his wife's funeral, setting oh, up dates. She went to the police. I feel like that was kind of the catalyst, sort of, like in the Peterson case was sort of the catalyst that got things moving. Like, oh, we know about this girlfriend now we can use that to kind of move forward with our case against this person. So things kind of start moving from there. Mm -hmm. Nice. Well, good thing that she was at least a decent person. It must, yeah, it she must, like she really I'm had sure no idea. She felt awful. I mean, can yeah. you imagine? So the state took several steps toward their goal of collecting evidence, including this special grand jury that I've mentioned a couple times. That was in December of 1989. There were tons and tons of witnesses, including the woman's mom. Her husband himself actually spent, he spent a lot of time talking before the grand jury. And during the grand jury hearings, his mother-in-law said she found his story to be very far-fetched and she could not be convinced that her daughter would go outside in bad weather in the winter without her gloves and hat on to dump this ash bucket for some reason. Very <laughs> pressing said, need to dump the ash bucket. You guys just aren't listening. She said her daughter hated the cold, but was told that her gloves and hat were still in the sunroom of the house. So that led her to believe if she went outside, she didn't have those with her and that never would have happened. She said and she walked right past them basically is what she's saying. Mm -hmm. mm. She also said that she had always known her son-in-law to take care of the wood stove. Anytime she visited, her daughter simply had to say she was cold and her son-in-law would start a fire. Her daughter, in fact, apparently had trouble starting fires, leading her husband to always take care of it. I think the mom is basically saying a lot of stuff that brings question to his story. His girlfriend is there bringing question to his character. I don't think this special grand jury is really going in his favor. And on top of that, he's there and he's changing his story. Like we talked about last week. Oh, well, you don't think it's believable that my wife went outside in the middle of the night to dump an ash bucket. That's actually because she didn't. What is, what's his next version of events? 
his next version of events, this is the one he sticks with in the trial. He says that after he and his wife returned home from their shop. I'm so ready for this. It's got to be better, right? Like he's had uh, like how much? Wait, okay, just wait. He's had how long now to think of this like <laughs> upgraded, updated <laughs> alibi? I'm don't ready. It's going to be your, great. Don't get your hopes up. Let's go. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. So he says that after they get back from shopping around 10, he went to the log pile and returned to find her busy with the wood stove removing ashes. At 1030, he went upstairs to shower and left his wife folding clothes on the day bed. At 11, he came back downstairs but didn't see her. So he went outside again and looked for her, just like he said in his first version of events. But this time he introduced a spotlight that he took from the landlord's house. So he said, yeah, I went over to the landlord's house, but while I was there, I grabbed this spotlight so I could, you know, see her more easily if she was outside. So he's still trying to claim she went outside or at least that he didn't know where she is. And that's the first place he looked for her. And he also added some extended efforts to pull this dinghy up out of the water. Now, I know we talked about the dinghy last week, but this was where he really said that he tried to pull it up and couldn't because it was full of water. That wasn't part of his original story. He said he spent a lot of time trying to pull this dinghy full of water up in efforts to row out to his wife, both before and after calling 911. And during the trial, since we've jumped a little bit forward to the trial, the landlord testified that the dinghy was up on land, upside down and completely water-free when he left for his trip over the weekend. So uh, another thing that really called question to how honest the husband was being. But also, didn't you say that the police said she was like in two feet of water or three feet of water. Yeah. They said that so, the whole area was only like three feet deep. So why would you be struggling with a dinghy when you see your wife out in the water? Why wouldn't you just, I mean, wouldn't the normal person say, oh my God, and rush out into the water, no matter how cold it was. Obviously, obviously he couldn't just do that because people were drowning. So it was a very dangerous three feet of water. <laughs> Maybe he feared a sea monster. Because obviously that's what got her. <laughs> so what so wait a minute what you're actually telling me is his upgraded version of events is literally just the same thing except oh i don't know why she went out in the right it's basically the same except for he doesn't claim to have actually seen her out of the corner of his eye go out with the ash bucket he's like oh i went upstairs to go to sleep and you know i was showering and getting ready for bed didn't hear her downstairs and got worried He's not trying to claim he actually knows that she went outside this time for whatever reason. I, I really don't even know. But he actually completely so shot himself in the foot. Well, this, this story was just as stupid because yep. if you remember from last week, and I know it's been a little while, but one of the things that the officers specifically noticed was that the laundry on the daybed was not folded. So why are you going to now introduce into your story that she was folding laundry the last time you saw her? That's what they say about lies, man. You just start making up details that, that you can't keep up with. 
Well, that's why, you know, a, a good murderer, and fortunately, there aren't too many of those. Yeah, you, you disclaimer, we your... are not here to give advice <laughs> on how to get away with murder. I'm just saying, a you know, good murderer. That's an oxymoron <laughs> if I've ever heard one. Come up with your story and stick with it. But but you're right. He probably started to see the holes and and then the first story didn't include struggling with the dinghy, right? No. We talked about the dinghy last week, but that was because you guys asked. And then he also claimed, didn't he drive his vehicle down to shine the lights on the green? Yeah, that was still part of this story. That was still part of this story. So he has the truck shining the lights, but then he also goes over to landlords to get a spotlight. The spotlight came first. Oh, okay. Yeah. His truck was down there. I mean, he couldn't really deny that part. It was down there still when the officers arrived. I don't know. I wouldn't look for a ton of logic here. (laughs) So uh, yeah, just wouldn't expect a whole ton right now from our boy, Mr. Archaeology. Back to the special grand jury. And I think we have talked about a grand jury before, but I do just want to mention that it's very different than a trial by jury. Is that correct? Yeah. A grand jury is an entirely different thing. Mm -hmm. There's two different, there's also even two different types of grand juries. There's a regular grand jury, which they just hear evidence from law enforcement and issue charges Mm -hmm. that are presented to them that almost like the law enforcement chooses the charge and presents the relevant evidence, but then a special grand jury, they can kind of go above and beyond that. They can actually issue subpoenas and ask people to come in and testify Mm -hmm. So it's almost like they're conducting their own investigation to a certain extent. And then based on what they learn from that investigation, they can choose if and what charges are appropriate. So obviously all of that is different than once you're charged and you're sitting in front of 12 people arguing Mm -hmm. whether or not you're guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Mm -hmm. That's, that's what a trial by jury is. And apparently the process for this special grand jury was actually started in the summer of 1989. So like I said, the the state had been kind of trying to push forward with this. It's just like we talked about last week. I don't think they wanted to jump the gun and kind of. Right. So also revealed during the special grand jury was the husband's continued relationship with his college girlfriend. And she gave several different statements. Some of them we've already heard talking about how she eventually found out about his wife and broke things off with him. And then he was stalking her. She talked about all of that. And he also talked about some of the different things from their relationship. He told the grand jury that after they broke up, he thought maybe they could get back together, but that it became apparent she wanted to go her own way. He also said he was not having a sexual relationship with this woman, but that they were both interested in each other. So that's why he didn't tell her he was married until after his wife died. He didn't want to ruin his chances. I'm just so shocked that he actually spoke to the special grand jury. Are you? Is that unusual? Super unusual. I mean, for essentially a defendant or not yet a defendant, but a suspect to be interviewed by the special grand jury. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think it's pretty unusual. Obviously we don't have a lot of direct involvement in special grand juries. That's pretty, that's a kind of atypical thing. Special grand juries aren't, they don't happen happen that often, Hmm. but for someone to testify, essentially that's like testifying at trial. That doesn't happen that often either. Yeah. Because they're 
worried that can kind of make you look bad and you can potentially perjure yourself and those sorts of things. Right. Right. Same theory with a special grand jury. Well, I guess, I don't know if they still really didn't have a thought as to what was going on. Like I said, I mean, we talked about this a couple of times last week. I don't have the police reports. So I got all of this from appeals that he filed later on. So there are some details missing. It's been fascinating. We don't know Everybody what makes law different- enforcement was up to all of this time yeah. leading up to the grand jury. Well, and everybody makes different decisions. I mean, I've had, I've had plenty of super serious cases where the defendants have testified at trial and I've been like, what? Like shocked, but it happens. Mm-hmm. People, well, people I think-, think that they have something believable to say. So mm-hmm. they'll. I think people feel like if you don't testify on your own behalf, that that makes you look guiltier because you aren't willing to step up and yeah, that's true. And, and then I think a lot of people testify because they're they're arrogant and like this guy, and they think they can get away with it. So mm-hmm. they're like, oh yeah, I'm testifying. I'm going to show them, you know, I'm innocent. Yeah, I think there are a lot of things that lawyers would suggest you do not do. though that people say if you don't do that you look guilty like if you have a lawyer they'll tell you not to take a lie detector test right but then if you're reading a story about a potential murderer and it says they refused a lie detector test you're like guilty (laughs) guilty but you know it might have just been their lawyer told them not to that's the difficult part about you know working in these sort of fields is working against those those implicit biases I remember you know practicing different openings and closings and cases in front of different people and getting reactions that you're just like, man, I can't believe people think this way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How do you get past it? How do you get through it? Mm. And it's not a, it's not a, it's a judgment to, to think, you know, how do people think this way? Everybody's entitled to their opinions, but you're, you've got those kind of rules in the law that you're not supposed to think anything negative of someone not testifying. Yeah. And it's hard for people to really actually believe that sometimes. Definitely. Well, I, I think it almost must be impossible when they're trying to seat a jury and they're trying to find people who haven't already made up their mind. I mean, I think it's human nature that you, if you've read about a murder, you have some opinion and about the only way you can be unbiased is if you have no idea whatsoever about yeah. the murder. And then you can well, say, you're oh, not, you're not you supposed to have any biased, Isn't that right? You just you're, have to say that it won't sway you from making the appropriate decision as indicated by the evidence, right? Or no. Yeah. So basically all of this kind of stuff is addressed in voir dire, which is the selection process for picking a jury. And you get to ask them all these questions from as general as, do you feel comfortable sitting here during COVID to have you ever been the victim of a crime to how do you feel about victims of domestic violence? You know, stuff like specific to your case. Mm-hmm. So all that stuff you're supposed to kind of walk through and you're not supposed to think those sort of things. Those are questions that are going to be asked. Do we all agree not to think negatively because this defendant doesn't testify? Because think- even if you feel that way, you have to be able to, you know, set that aside. Mm-hmm. That's. I feel like it would be easy to say that you could set those things aside and then kind of find it more difficult than you thought. Yep. Yeah. 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 Voidir is very interesting for sure. 
Well, what, what about that case where that woman was accused of murdering her daughter? And I mean, every single person in America thought she was guilty and wanted to give her what, the death penalty. What do you mean that case? <laughs> the case you mean Florida. Casey Anthony yes I you forgot Casey I, Anthony's name so everybody in America wanted to give this woman the death penalty and the jury who probably walked in there thinking yeah I want to give her the death penalty they found her innocent I mean mm-hmm. oh my god so people I guess are actually able to listen to the evidence and it's say true despite my personal feelings, I don't think the the state proved their case. Yeah. That's what you're supposed to do. You're you're exactly supposed to set that aside and say Mm -hmm. whether or not the social media (laughs) jury has convicted this person. I have certain elements that have to have been found and certain evidence that has to have been presented. And that's the way that a jury is supposed to work. Yeah. Yeah. That's the way it's supposed to work. And our Mr. Original Scott Peterson here did (laughs) go to trial by jury because he pled not guilty. So that would be the normal sort of process through the legal system. After three years of collecting evidence, he was arrested finally on March 22nd, 1990 and charged with class one. I thought the, the I thought the the murder took place in 1989. I don't know. It was in 1987. Okay, 87. Grand jury meets in 89 and a year later they charge him. Yes. A year after the he grand jury. Okay. Was charged with class 1 felonious murder. He was initially tried in 1990 starting in June, which resulted in a guilty verdict, but in November that trial ended in a mistrial due to improper jury deliberations after a televised interview during jury deliberations. Apparently, Mm. someone from the jury did an interview with a local news station, and I couldn't find any more details than that, but they had to end in a mistrial. And we we learned, I think was our last story where we learned about the thing I can't pronounce and that you said is just null pros, just called null pros in the biz. Is that right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> so yeah, as we may remember that term from our from your horrifying middle school bud, <laughs> the mistrial was further classified as a null pros, which means that they can come back and try again, is what you said basically, right? Yeah, it means that they can reissue the charges and essentially start over entirely. His second trial started in April of 1991. He again pled not guilty, so went to a jury trial again, which lasted 14 days. He was observed to be completely emotionless during the entire trial. And I mean, I feel like you can never judge people based on how they're acting after something like this, unless you've been through it. And even if you've been through it, you're not that person. So you don't know how they might handle it. And it had been four years at this point. So I don't know, should he still be, if he's innocent, should he still be, I mean, I guess just completely emotionless is a little weird. I don't know. Yeah. I, I, there's no good way to act, right? Yeah, if you're too emotional, people think you're suspicious. If you're not emotional, people think (laughs) you're suspicious. One would hope that it's just scary to think of innocent people being prosecuted. 
because mm-hmm. it's easy to sit here and be like, oh, this guy. But what if he really, you know, what if, what if he somehow these stories, these bullshittery stories are true are true. I mean, <laughs> and he's innocent. I mean, I fully think Scott Peterson is innocent. So you do. I do. Well, I, I, I who think- was looking up the sunflower umbrella after her husband was seen at his office. I don't even know what you're talking about. You might as well be speaking. That's probably why you think he's guilty. You're a true crime obsessor. (laughs) Well, yeah, obviously I need to revisit the Scott Peterson case. Yeah. One of these days we're just going to have an episode (laughs) where we debate each other on innocent or guilty (laughs) of all of the top murderers of all time. What about Casey Anthony? Guilty. Okay, good. Glad you have some sense. (laughs) (laughs) But but I agree. I think let's say you're innocent and you've been charged with a crime and I'm sure you're horrified and in a state of shock. But I think innocent or guilty four years after the event to be sitting there, you know, rending your clothes and tearing your hair and sobbing. I, I think the jury would just think of that as bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. There were a lot of different pieces of evidence presented to the court during this trial. His entire 911 call was played. We talked about that last week in full and they had someone analyzing all of the parts of it that seemed suspicious. All of the things wow. that, that <laughs> if basically, I ever, if I ever call 911, I have to be I know, sure that you I'm have to like spot on. <laughs> there's this blog that worried about you the way you laughing right now (laughs) that just analyzes 911 calls basically and talks about like this isn't how people talk people don't say this people don't say that people don't use this turn of phrase they wouldn't cry at this part when they said my child instead of my daughter like if it was a daughter you would say a daughter unless you didn't care about it and that's why you called it a child and I'm just like oh my god relax that's the world we live in though, right? Everything is hyper-analyzed. Everybody thinks yeah. they know how they would react That's in any true. given circumstance. That's true. Okay, so so one of the pieces of evidence was that his yes. 911 call was analyzed yes. and judged to be deficient. Yes. His mother-in-law also testified that he told her on January 3rd and January 17th that he wasn't sure if his wife had any life insurance policies, but the prosecution Uh. brought his character into question by demonstrating he actually contacted the lawyer for his wife's estate on the 16th. Not a good look. One day before he told his mother-in-law insurance policy big shrug, who? big shrug, big who <laughs> who that who and is he it? listed who five found? insurance policies totaling $720,000 and we mentioned this last week but when he, he finally told his it. mother-in-law two months later he told her that there was one insurance policy for $10,000 yeah i just don't know why people i mean this is the kind of lie that any intelligent person mm-hmm. must realize they're going to be caught in yep I, I just don't get it i mean maybe lying to your mother-in-law but you know it is going to come out that he had a bunch of these insurance policies yeah and this is you know this is the thing where people say coincidence i think not the man right. had five insurance policies one was double indemnity if you died on a weekend or mm-hmm. a i mm-hmm. mean right away that's red flags 
Yeah, I agree. And it's the Oakham's razor, right? <laughs> no. It's well, basically what... the idea. Well, I thought you might know. It's basically <laughs> the idea that usually, and I know investigators and police officers and people who actually work in this field use this idea a lot. It's the idea basically that Oakham's razor. Oh, I haven't heard of it. It's basically the idea that the simplest explanation, the simplest story is usually going to be the story, right? It makes much more sense that he got mad at his wife and smothered her and dumped her body than that all of these extraneous weird ass things happened instead. Right. You know, or that he had a girlfriend and he finally decided I've got to get rid of, you know, wifey because I want a bunch of money and I want to be with a student girl. But I mean, his defense for their part, they pleaded with the jury to end their client's nightmare. They cited things like his wife actually knew about his, I mean, obviously they didn't call her the girlfriend, but they said his wife knew about his friend that he met through the archaeology community. They argued actually that they were not in any sort of relationship, didn't have any sort of attraction for one another, contrary to their own client's statements, and said that she was just using him to try to get a good job after graduation. (laughs) They said that the money she was sending to her mom was just for her mom to use in case of an emergency. I mean, they, you know, kind of systematically went through and tried to address each one of these points and explain them in a way that reflected better for their guy. Well, that's what they're paid for. I think some of these points are like a little bit too irrefutable based on the things that have been testified to. Well, they also said that the bruises on his wife's wrists had been caused by bracelets that she had on and the cuff of her jacket but the problem was that the medical examiner already specifically said years ago at this point that there's no way the bruises could have been caused by something that gentle it had to be very severe contact of some sort so I don't know it's like I feel like you can't just be heavy bracelets (laughs) shackles (laughs) I just feel like and you know we weren't there it's easy for us to say this is all so stupid but I'm sure they were good lawyers and I'm it just seems ill-advised to try to dispute what the expert specifically said I'm sure it happens all the time though you got to work with what you got to work with your client chooses whether or not they they go to trial yeah if they say I'm not guilty we're going to trial you you're going to trial yeah. But I mean, isn't, isn't it sort of, I mean, but the lawyers are obligated by law because they're lawyers to tell the truth, right? So no, can they really they're say obligated yes. to say yes. what they believe the truth they, to be. They Their client not, could have lied to them. So they are so, not allowed to lie. They are not allowed to let their client lie. You can't stop him. Yeah, no, you, you actually have to. Ethically, you have to. You would have to actually stop the entire thing and tell the truth. Right, but if you don't know he's lying, is yeah, what I'm yeah, saying. If you genuinely yeah. believed his bullshit. But right? would you believe anything as absurd as that this woman wore bracelets so heavy and so brutal that they caused serious injury to herself, but she was like, oh, 
but I yes, like them. Keep Unless you're accusing them. these whoever these lawyers were of an ethical violation, then obviously they did think that. <laughs> I'm going. Yeah, I don't know. I'm I mean, going that's... with ethical violation. <laughs> it's. I don't think it's about whether or not they believe it. It's whether or not they know it. Do they okay. know whether or not did he admit to them that those bruises were caused by something different? Okay, then they can't. They can't even you know, make that sort of argument, but. Well, why can the state make that argument then? They can't be, def like, they can't be a hundred percent sure that that's what happened. That's what the evidence indicates in their opinion. Yeah. Cause they have the medical examiner and they say what, it's the medical examiner's opinion. It's a professional opinion. Mm. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're not, they weren't there. They aren't saying what, you know, what they know to have happened. They're arguing what they believe to have happened based on the evidence. The evidence. Yeah. Mm. That everyone has provided. So what did his lawyers, how did they explain away all the insurance policies or did they? They didn't. They just okay. said those were normal. They had those. Yes. Drugs. She knew about them. Oopsie. She knew about them. They were picked out together. There's nothing nefarious. It's not even something that should have been brought up was basically their, their opinion. Did, no did big she, deal. Did she have five insurance policies on him? Yeah. Oh, he really? was on all the same policies. It's oh. just that it's just that the last ones he signed for. Oh. And he said, we talked about this last week. He right. said he had her permission to sign them for both of them. Is that true? A likely story. Perhaps. That's what he said. We don't know what she said because we can't ask her. But yeah, right. I mean, they, he was on these policies as well. It wasn't. Oh, okay. Like, he had fallen off the dock instead of her. She would have gotten all the money. Yes. But we can infer that she really didn't know about the last ones because why wouldn't you just say, oh dear, here's another insurance policy. We both have to sign it. But yeah, yeah, we can infer that, I suppose. What did it say? Well, after only 90 minutes of deliberation on June 16th, the jury well, of 12- Well, I guess not that hard to say after all. The jury of 12 returned and he was found guilty of second degree murder and sentenced to 20 years in the state penitentiary. So the jury obviously thought that his side of the story clear. was bullshit. Everything was relatively clear to them. Yeah. I mean, 90 minutes, that's a pretty short deliberation there, isn't it? Yeah, it's funny. You you never know if your jury comes back in 30 minutes, you're like, oh, wait, wait a minute. Which which thing does this mean? Is this a good thing or a bad thing? Mm -hmm. But 90 minutes is pretty quick, especially you said it was 14 days. I mean, mm -hmm. they had a lot of evidence and 90 minutes is not a lot of time to deliberate based on that length of a trial. Yeah. Sounds like they just walked in and said, he's guilty, right? And somebody else said, yeah, but let, let's take a while because we'll still get that free lunch if, if <laughs> for here past noon. Perhaps. I really hope that the criminal justice system doesn't function the way that you believe, madam, <laughs> madam guest. Well, the... So so, but why second degree murder? That I find interesting because to me, and, and once again, our lawyer friend can, you know, address this more. 
it sounds very premeditated. What about it sounds premeditated? It was the dumbest ass plan in the whole <laughs> history of plans. What about it sounds premeditated? Well, the, fi- the, fi- the five or seven insurance policies, the double indemnity for the holiday. Maybe, maybe, I mean. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. That's true. I just true. think about how That's stupid it all, it all panned out to be, but you're right. I mean, I don't know. I wonder, it's interesting because, you know, you always want to try to touch, like reach out to your jury afterwards and be like, what made you decide that? I wonder if this prosecution team was able to do that. Cause well, yeah, I'd be I, hella curious. I think that they basically decided that it was a heat of the moment, crime of passion sort of thing. They got in a fight. What they think, I believe, is that they got in a fight and he smothered her while she was folding the the laundry. And it just was a coincidence that he had five insurance policies out on her? Yeah, I guess. Well, I, I could see that, that he, that he did buy these, you know, five insurance policies and it was in his, the back of his mind. Yeah. You know, if, if she, something happened to her boy, I'd have all this money and I'd be free, but maybe, maybe the crime, the, the murder itself was heat of passion. Maybe she confronted him about this girlfriend. Maybe she confronted him about maybe he wasn't being nice to her. You know, there could be a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And yeah, they got into a fight. You know, he grabs her wrist and shakes her and then knocks her down and smothers her with the unfolded laundry. I mean, I mean, the unfolded laundry was one of the biggest things it seemed to me when I was reading <laughs> through these appeals that were filed about why they thought his version, yeah, why they thought his version was bullshit because he <laughs> said she folded the laundry and there was all the laundry and an unfolded mess. Well, he was in such a state that he threw it about afterwards. Yeah, when he was looking for her glasses. Mm-hmm. Oh, wait, just kidding. Those were in the water, so. Yeah, I mean, I, I can see that that the actual murder could have been a heat of passion. I still would, in, I would still consider it a premeditated murder because I still think that was in, in the back of his mind. I mean, I guess they kind of had a hard time. The Commonwealth's attorney described the young woman's death as almost the perfect crime. He actually admitted afterward. So, you know, it, it, again, I feel like kind of, it's still a little bit of hindsight bias. It's easy for us to look at this, what, 30 years later and be like, come on, this is so cut and dry. Obviously he did it, but the Commonwealth's attorney basically said that the case was incredibly hard to argue and that it was only down to the bruises on her body, basically to explain. It is is a circumstantial case. I mean, there was all those different Mm -hmm. issues with the autopsies, making different findings and making different conclusions and reasonable doubt reasonable doubt is a very high standard because she had I mean we talked a little bit about it last week but she had some stuff going on she'd recently started taking a bunch of new medications some of them could cause dizzy spells so the defense said there was no physical evidence that you know the client did anything wrong and that it was likely the wife did go down to the water had a dizzy spell fell in that's possibly why she didn't stand up in the three feet of water I don't know there it's all like you know a lot of these stories we talk about there's a lot going on a lot of different 
layers, a lot of opinions. And a lot of jurors that, I mean, come in with their own thoughts, feelings, opinions. I mean, somebody could have resonated with him. You never know. Trying Mm -hmm. anything is such a gamble. Mm -hmm. Well, he was found guilty twice. So I I feel like it's true. Most people had no doubt that that he did it. And I mean, among the people I knew, nobody, you know, it was Casey Anthony all over again. Everybody thought he was guilty. And I I think in the beginning, it was like, oh my God, poor, what's his face? Archaeology boy, his wife died. Then it was like, then it came out about the insurance policies. Then it came out about the girlfriend. And, you know, it was like each one was sort of a, a nail in the coffin and a public opinion swaying against him. Right. Well, here's something really interesting that I think is important. Guess who was in the courtroom with his parents for this trial? The girlfriend. No, his no? second wife. Who? What? He got remarried. Son of a bitch. Yeah. A year before his hearing. He got remarried to a woman. Remember he moved, met a new woman after he moved, they got married. So she was in the courtroom with his parents. His parents refused to speak to reporters, but the three of them were there supporting him. All I got to say ladies, is know your worth. <laughs> that's all I got to say. Well, that's, that's very sad, but, but is so sadly common of women being attracted to serial killers and murderers. I think she thought he was innocent. I don't think this was a case of. I think people are very (laughs) adept at ignoring red flags. Yeah, I don't think this was a Ted Bundy roadie. She genuinely (laughs) thought he was just a nice guy Super she loved. I, I, you know, I just keep thinking if I met a guy and he was like, you know, my wife. I'm on trial died. for the murder of my wife. You know, have a nice life. I, I just, I just, I just don't think I could be that interested. We don't know <laughs> him. I mean, you did, mom, but generally we don't know him. He, he may have been a trauma. Yeah. It's possible that he was really charming and very convincing. I'm, I mean, I truly have no, absolutely no idea. There wasn't, I didn't see any mention of any of that anywhere, but you never know. About him being charming either. So you say he was sentenced to 20 years. Let's, let's get to that. What happened? Well, what happened? Was Off he, to prison he went. His wife cried. His Not that he's parents a wailed. He see you in 18 and a half. And he went to jail. So that was, that was it. He goes to jail. What year did all this happen? He's probably out by now. He is out. So this happened in 1991. He went off to jail that day. The judge actually said he would consider a reasonable bond until the sentencing hearing. But the Commonwealth's attorney said he would oppose bond for anybody convicted of a malicious crime and that this guy was no exception. So he was going to fight to keep him in jail. Yes. Yeah, I would hope that murderers. Yeah. yeah I, didn't I thought that think was interesting. I didn't think murderers got bond, especially after you've been found guilty. Wouldn't that be a reason like to take off? Yeah. yeah that's a pretty unusual thing to even consider. It may have just been like common practice for the mm. court to at least ask the Commonwealth's opinion on it. Mm-hmm. Not that they were going to actually like, 
yeah <laughs> head on home bud yeah well he didn't get to head on home he went to jail and he stayed really? in jail he did he he just this guy likes to stay busy so after third uh, wife settling down in jail he made some sort of escape attempt during the late summer of 1991, he was acquitted of that attempt in December of 1991. Unfortunately, and I said last week, I'm super nosy. So obviously I really wanted to know, but I couldn't find any additional information on that. And then he settled into the life of learning legal shit and yep, filing appeals. Either appeals <laughs> or Jesus or a combination of the two. It's a it's a good combination. <laughs> yeah. Good stuff. Good stuff. So in 1993, his team filed a pretty hefty appeal for retrial based on five different items. And I want to talk about this one because I really think it was fascinating. I read through the whole appeal and the response to each of these five things that the state issued. So the five items for appeal for retrial were one, denying motion to strike the state's evidence and denying motion to set aside the jury verdict after the prosecution failed to prove the corpus delecti or is it delisti? Yeah, I actually, listen, we almost called our podcast this. Good thing we didn't. <laughs> yeah, Isn't it corpus delecti? Yeah, um, that sounds good. Which basically means what? That the death was the result of a criminal act? Right. It's like the substance of the crime, like the meat okay. of the crime is the best way I can explain it. So what are they saying with this? That, that his that they didn't version prove of events crime that place. she drowned oh. accidentally oh, is reasonable doubt mm -hmm. and that there, oh, okay. there was no proof of a mm -hmm. murder. The second point was that they were denied a change of venue request. And we'll get more into each of these when we come to the state's response. The third one was failing to ensure the jury list was made available to counsel 48 business hours in advance. <laughs> The fourth one was permitting the prosecution to cross-examine the suspect on matters beyond the scope of direct examination. And I want to actually pause on this one because I feel like you have totally mentioned this to me in some of the cases that you've been a part of before. Like you can't ask these people about other crimes and things like that, right? It has to be specifically related to the line of question and the evidence for this case. Right. So there's almost like two different evidentiary things going on in this sort of circumstance. So the, the thing that you were just talking about, when you talk about, you can't really ask somebody about crimes that that's just all about character evidence. You can't just basically try to say, look, this guy's a piece of shit. So he would obviously be a piece of shit on this occasion. And you should <laughs> believe that he killed his wife. Mm -hmm. But the other specific issue here being outside the scope of direct examination. So when you call a witness, you're in control of what that witness testifies about. 
So if you only ask the witness about A through E, and then the other attorney tries to ask them about X, Y, Z, they can't ask them about that. That's outside the scope of the direct examination. Okay. So you can't even ask them, even if it has nothing to do with a bad thing, like a question that would be perfectly permissible otherwise, you can't ask it if it's not something that the person who put that person on the stand asked about. Gotcha. So that'd be somewhere where uh, someone would say, objection. Yep. Objection outside the scope. Outside of the scope. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's a lot of very, it's actually a jury instruction, something like lawyers, evidence is bound by rules. If you hear a lawyer object, you shouldn't think anything negative of it. You shouldn't, Mm -hmm. you know, you should just lawyers have to make certain objections to certain pieces of evidence. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there's a lot of objections, a lot of very in-depth objections that go into trials for sure. Yeah. The fifth and final point for the appeal was refusing to recuse the Commonwealth's attorney, which prevented the defense from calling him as a witness. Ooh. Yeah. What did he witness? To remember, the couple actually attended a Christmas party at their landlord's house, and the Commonwealth's attorney was there. At the party. landlord, yeah, at the party, at the Christmas party. And at the Christmas party, apparently, the landlord told people that he and his wife would be out of town on New Year's weekend. So evidently, someone wanted to question him about that taking place and whether or not he knew that, whether or not he knew that the suspect knew that piece of information. So I couldn't find any more information than that. So each of these points was denied, ultimately leading to the appeal being denied. Shock. I mean, points for creativity, but yeah, I mean, appeals, like I said, there's a lot of evidentiary issues. If you, if there was an evidentiary ruling during the trial that was off base, then that's going to be a good potential avenue for an appeal. But an appeal after a jury trial is not de novo. It's not, you know, they're looking at it brand new. Mm -hmm. They're looking at it for certain errors. You have to meet levels of harm almost, if that makes sense. Right. It's not just, oh, well, I could have thought differently. If a reasonable mm-hmm. mind could have thought that way, mm-hmm. then then the appeal is going to be denied. So it's just a different ball game once it gets to an appeal. Yeah. Like they don't even care if he's guilty or innocent. That's not what they're reviewing at all. Correct. They're reviewing. Did the court make any mistakes? It depends on what they're arguing on appeal. Mm-hmm. When they're talking about the first argument that's being made. That's essentially an argument that he's innocent and that the court made the wrong decision. True. In well, not the court made the wrong decision, but that the the finder of fact, the jury made the wrong decision. Mm -hmm. But essentially, the other issues are not necessarily arguing that he's innocent. It's just arguing that some evidentiary rule was broken, or Mm -hmm. like you said, that like they made a wrong decision, basically. Well, in the case of We'll start with the first one, the proof of what I already forgot how you guys said it was pronounced. Corpus delecti. 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 
Yes. In the proof of corpus delecti, for example, the state showed that the evidence sufficiently proved that his wife's death had indeed been the result of a criminal act. They said the medical evidence established she had died of asphyxiation before entering the water and also that the bruises on her body proved she had been subjected to violence. The bruises were caused by great force at her time of death. Most notably, there were four linear bruises on her wrist consistent with finger marks. And they stated these were likely inflicted by another person. The state also used his wife's small stature, the cuts on his hand, his changing story, the unfolded laundry. He said he saw the fucking unfolded laundry, (laughs) the abundant means of suffocation, his infatuation with another woman, his lies about the dinghy and his claim of finding the glasses in the water after a incredibly thorough search by police officers to reject his first point for the appeal well when you put it that way (laughs) it really sounds like it was indeed stacked against him (laughs) when it's all laid out like that oh man (sighs) tough so that was just the first point they refuted yeah so in the next point on the appeal the request to change venue the state was able to show they struck all jurors who had pre-formed opinions ahead of the trial yep so they kept the receipts (laughs) apparently (laughs) in the case of the late submittal of the jury list Apparently it was indeed provided 48 hours ahead of time on Friday, ahead of a Monday trial. And there seemed to be no requirement that they had to be business hours. 48 hours is evidently fine is what the state basically was trying to say, as far as I could tell. So they, I didn't even know, I didn't even know there was a timeline, honestly. So they were, they were ruining these lawyers weekends by giving it to them on Friday. (laughs) So they had to work all weekend. That was mean, man. Yeah, man. I'd I'd file an appeal just on that. Ruined my. <laughs> I was supposed to go to a party that weekend. In the case of the unjust cross examination, the big one here was that the prosecution asked the defendant if he'd placed fabric over his wife's mouth, which his team argued was out of the scope of direct examination because no evidence had been introduced supporting this inference. But the state disagreed because the question was related to a statement he made about his wife folding the laundry the last time he saw her alive. Right. So they were like, oh, she had laundry. Did you put it over her face? <laughs> right. <laughs> As one does. <laughs> That's what I always say when people lie about folding laundry. <laughs> so who did you who did you suffocate with that unfolded laundry? <laughs> Bro, you sound crazy right now. <laughs> so finally, in the case of the Commonwealth's attorney being recused, the state said it didn't even matter because when questioned, the Commonwealth's attorney said, sure, he heard the landlord say he was going to be out of town at the Christmas party, but he couldn't even remember what weekend they were talking about. And ultimately, the landlord's fiance testified directly that she told him in person she would be out of town New Year's weekend. So harmless error. Just a moot point. Yeah. Literally harmless yeah. error. 
Mm -hmm. I, I don't know, obviously, how appeals normally work, but at the bottom of all of this, basically denying, there's like a little summary denying the entire appeal, and it was indicated that there were three judges who heard the appeal and all agreed that it should be denied. So I don't know if that's standard. Our appeals kind of presented to a panel of judges that have to agree on what decision should be made. Yeah, that must have been at the court of appeals level. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a panel of three that make the decisions at the court of appeals level. Okay. And then from the Supreme court, I think it's seven, it could be nine. Mm -hmm. Damn. I should definitely know that. (laughs) Don't do a ton of practicing in front of the Supreme court. So yeah, but yeah, so the, it'll usually indicate who, you know, who was consenting on the Mm -hmm. opinion. Mm -hmm. In 1996, he filed a FOIA request from prison. It was rejected like mine for this case. Ooh, Damn that's, it. that's a spish. He was requesting the physical tape, not a copy, like the original physical tape of his 911 call. His team wanted to copy and analyze that tape. He filed an appeal for the rejection of the FOIA request, and that was also ultimately dismissed. That appeal for the rejection of his FOIA request was ongoing for years. Wow. He tried to appeal again in 1998 and 2000, but he and his team were never able to get that recording. In the end, he served his 20 years and was released in 2011. Oh, he probably lives around the corner. Ooh, shivers. So yeah. so he served his full sentence. He did. It's- he would have been, I guess, in his 50s. When he got out? Yeah, in 2011. That's crazy. Yeah. I wonder if his wife, his second wife, I wonder if she stuck with him. They have the after together forever. To know, look him up on the Facebook. I did. I looked him up everywhere. Oh my gosh! I didn't have. Of course, he doesn't have social media. No, I wouldn't. I wasn't surprised not to find. I mean, I found people that could have been him, but it just didn't seem like I found people with the same name, but Mm. they didn't seem right. You know, not murdery enough. Just not. I just didn't think they were probably him. And even if they were, they didn't have much on their pages. That's hella crazy to think about. I actually couldn't find anything chilling in the world. He is. I couldn't find anything on him other than a dismissed felony charge for contempt slash FTA interrogation. I don't know what FTA interrogation means, but FTA means failure to appear. Huh? So contempt or failure to appear for an interrogation failure to appear usually means for court Hmm. you can't fail to appear for an interrogation there's no such thing only a court (laughs) can order you to appear Uh uh-huh so yeah i have no idea what the word interrogation means there i would assume that's in reference to him failing to appear at some point in in a felony case Uh uh-huh that's what i would assume that means that was in april of 2011. And then there was also an infraction for operating a vehicle with a radar detecting or jamming device in June of 2012. He prepaid for the ticket. Mm. 
but he was that living shit, man. now that was in 2012 at that time he was living in a different state but that ticket was in virginia so that's how i found it and that's it i well i couldn't find anything else after 2012 like he's turned his life around yeah presumably rehabilitated just <laughs> out I think- here living his best life I think he should be disallowed from ever buying life insurance again. (laughs) (laughs) Literally. That's a good point. Uh, It would be curious to know if his second wife stuck with him. I know. I would love to ever after. (laughs) Except for. I don't know. You know, they weren't married that long. And let's say you, you meet some guy, you think he's, he's great. And you get married after not knowing him very long. And then they tell you, well, you'll see him again in 20 years. Uh, you know, if you'd been married for 20 years, you might hang in, but I mean, they knew him, they might they be knew him very well. She was at the trial <laughs> with mom and dad. Yeah. They, she was I mean, ready. She was waiting years, for him. 20 I'll years isn't a long time to wait for your, for your soulmate, True love. you know, soulmate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. People okay. have stuck by for crazier amounts of time than that i think true it's crazy to think about him like just out here absolutely i mean i get it i get it it's it's been 20 years you know he served his debt in theory that's the way the criminal justice system works but it's just crazy to think about but i mean also like not to keep going back but it just seems so interesting you know, we had our guy a few, gosh, I don't know, probably over, definitely over a month ago at this point who shot his former roommate and best friend. Right. And he got what? 20 years, 10 years. Okay. Yeah. But still though, no, I I don't know. I mean, I get it. Well, on the other hand, it's hard to think it's how much is enough though. Right. There's just no, there's no, nothing's enough. Right. Nothing takes back what happened. That's true. So and I, I mean, think that's the difficulty. Yeah. I mean, he, he had illegal drugs with him. He eluded arrest. He shot this guy twice. I mean, 10 years seems reasonable for that. I'm just not sure if 20 years is reasonable for killing somebody. Yeah. Well, but what if he is innocent? Yeah. Right. What if his wife <laughs> did get clawed in the head by an owl? What if his <laughs> wife did get stolen by some satanic pregnancy ritual cult what if his wife did get dizzy and fall off the pier you feeling okay <laughs> after after taking her man we've been off. we've been locked in here for a little while so i think we might have to wrap this one it's a little say, crazy right now I, I just have one last comment to make if he did suffocate her oh you do with some something a pillow unfolded laundry mm. i wonder if they ran tests on every piece of cloth in the house to show what to show her dna she lived there of course it would have her dna first of all saliva but but first of all it was the 80s so and also it was the 80s so no so dna has come a long long way but even now i don't think they could determine that it was DNA saliva from her saliva yeah, while no. she was suffocating versus no. just DNA because it was her, the sheets she slept on every night. Yeah. I mean, maybe, I mean, maybe, they can, but unlikely. Maybe they can. I mean, I know they can determine obviously blood and semen and stuff, but I don't know if they can specifically determine if something was saliva. 
Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. All righty. Well, yeah, well, that we... was that was the end of our the second part of our story. We we're gonna, we uh, I want to call it our original name for it: the Can of Ash Murders. Dun, That's dun, what we were calling dun. it. I yeah, like Mister Archaeology. <laughs> no way to Can of Ash Murders is good. Oh, I I think you should call it the dinghy with the hole in. <laughs> <laughs> the dinghy full of water. The uh, most bullshittery you could come up with in one explanation. <laughs> and with so that, I bid you adieu. A lot of people said he was so smart. That's the best he could come up with. Come on, bro. Well, he must I have really you, thought something of it. He really I thought he was saying something. And so maybe it's the truth. <laughs> I think no, you me. can be really smart, but I don't think any of us spend our, you know, we're really smart about archaeology or we make good grades. But that probably is what bit him in the ass is thinking he was so smart that he had come up with this brilliant explanation of why his wife was, you know, in the water. Or it speaks to the fact that it wasn't premeditated because he didn't have time to come up with a better lie. Maybe, maybe. But never know. Another day, another sad story. Fun day, fun day. (laughs) Sad, 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 horrible, traumatic, awful shit. (laughs) So if you want more sad, sad, horrible, awful, awful, traumatic shit. We should change our title to that. Oh, we should. I I like it personally. You know, it's, it's honest. (laughs) It really tells you what you're getting into. It's got to do the disclaimer. Check us out on sad, sad, awful, horrible, traumatic (laughs) shit.com. Just kidding. <laughs> you can check us out at the murderer, you know, podcast.com. You can email us at murderer, you know, at gmail.com. You can check us out on Instagram murderer, you know, podcast or Facebook at MYK pod. You guys have anything to add? Nope. I'm looking forward to next week. So maybe I'm not a guest next week. Uh, I think you are. I think we're going to talk about the 2006 murder spree. Nope. See, li- listen, listen to me very carefully. I have been holding on for dear life. You are not going to derail this ending with something called the 2006 murder spree. So I bid you adieu. You'll have to come back next week to figure out what the hell that bullshittery is about. Because we ain't talking about it right now. Okay. Oh okay. <laughs> I do. Ta-ta.